Hi there. This is 76 West, a podcast from the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan. I'm Jason Blitman, and this spring, we're talking about sustainability and the earth here on the podcast. I didn't realize that New York City's curbside recycling program started only 30 years ago. And at the time, there wasn't even a thing called e-waste. As we all know, technology has changed drastically since then and is constantly evolving, which means that e-waste and how we get rid of it is also evolving. What is e-waste? Well, any sort of electronic waste from old cell phones to giant box TVs to all shapes of computers to bulky printer slash scanner slash copiers. And while it currently only takes up about 2% of what ends up in a landfill, it contributes 70% of the lead and heavy metals found on those sites. To learn more about e-waste, I talked to Christine Datz-Romero, co-founder and executive director of the Lower East Side Ecology Center. Christine has pioneered and developed innovative community-based recycling programs focusing on urban sustainability as part of the Ecology Center since 1987. The Ecology Center provides unique e-waste and composting services, environmental stewardship opportunities, and educational programming to all New Yorkers who want to learn about environmental issues and take responsibility for creating solutions through action. On April 23rd, the JCC is partnering with the Ecology Center to serve as an e-waste drop-off site. Check out mmjccm.org for more information. If you're listening to this after that date, it's a great way to learn about what happens to e-waste once you drop it off, and ways that we can all live more sustainable lives. And now here's my conversation with Christine Datz-Romero. First and foremost, how did the Lower East Side Ecology Center come to be? Can you give us the cliff note version of your fantastic story that started 35 plus years ago? Yeah, 35 years ago. It's unbelievable. How the Ecology Center really came to be is out of a desire to, first of all, recycle materials. 35 years ago, that was not a given that you could even recycle newspapers or bottles and cans. And so I searched out opportunities and then started um, volunteering actually with a group over on the West side. And then really together with my husband, Clyde Romero, we both decided that we really wanted to bring these opportunities for recycling to our neighborhood. And that's how the Lower East Side Ecology Center was born. Also remember the Lower East Side famously recycled their empty lots into gardens. There was a lot of, I think, inspiration in this neighborhood. At what point did you know or did you start to realize that some of these things were recyclable? How did that come to be? I grew up in Germany. I think the whole idea of recycling or reusing is a lot more ingrained in that society as such. And it was rather, for me, it was like, why isn't this being recycled? then, oh, I could recycle that. So I came from a slightly different angle. But the interesting story, for example, about our starting a composting program is that we got a space from the city in 1990 on 7th Street between B and C and empty lot. And we wanted to, of course, make it beautiful and didn't have a green thumb lease. So we were like, so how are we going to make soil? We're going to make our own soil with food scraps. And that's how we started composting to really improve something and in a way show our community how recycling can really benefit spaces right in front of your feet in front of your eyes, right? Mm. So an empty lot can actually turn into this green oasis 
if you recycle food scraps, make compost, apply it, and then all of a sudden there is flowers, shrubs, trees growing on that side. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, sort of realization to do that was something that, weirdly enough, I learned in a big city like New York City. Well, it's so interesting, too, because you're in an environment where green space is limited, and so you need to be creative with how you create that. So I think that's pretty cool. I also feel like composting has almost become trendy in the last few years. I say in quotation marks, but mm-hmm. you've it's something you've been doing obviously for decades now. And you're called a compost pioneer, which I think is a very cool thing in an environment where the city is a huge small city and people live in spaces that are not necessarily conducive to composting. What's a way for some people to start? How does somebody start composting? It sounds very complicated. How do we make it easy for folks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It's the natural process. In terms of what, how we recycle a lot of our materials, composting is probably something that will happen one way or another anyhow, right? Everything that was once alive will break down into other components and hopefully be reconnected to a cycle to renew. But for people, obviously not everybody has a backyard or access to a community garden. One way of participating in this is to search out a drop-off location to bring your food scraps to, let's say, a green market or a community garden. And we have a bunch of these placed in every community now. And obviously the city, also the mayor, made this announcement not too long ago to really, hopefully this time it is for real, roll out a citywide curbside program for people. We have had starts and fits. And then remember we had curbside in certain districts and organics collection, and then it got taken away because of the pandemic. And it just never really came back Mm. in a meaningful way until last fall when they ran a pilot in Queens. And I think by the end of March now, Queens residents can just put their food scraps in a brown bin that's supplied by the city. And once a week, sanitation will stop by and pick that up. So that that is super convenient. And Brooklyn is, I think, going to be next. And then the program is phased in until the fall of 2024, when even Manhattan will get that service. Mm. And how do you recommend prepping that stuff at home? Is it like any sort of food scrap you stick in a bag and put it in the freezer? I know some people do Mm -hmm. have a little thing on their counter. Is it, is there like a, how do you do it? Is there a way that you recommend specifically? Yeah, I actually have a little bucket that I fill and Mm -hmm. I line it with some leaves or some newspaper or something just to keep the juices, if you will, down a little bit. But I don't keep it in my fridge. But people, a lot of people put actually their food scraps either in freezer or the fridge, which is Mm -hmm. a good way of just storing these materials. And then I would just really say, whoever you participate with, just read what they accept because... The city's program accepts everything. You can bring bones, meat, fish, mussel shells, you name it. You mm-hmm. can bring all of these materials and a community composting site might not be able to handle all of it. Whatever program is convenient for you to participate in, to really find out what exactly they can handle and what they cannot handle is a good way to start. Yeah. Other than it sounds like 
follow the rules of what your local (laughs) composting does. But it sounds like there's otherwise not a wrong way to do it. No, I mean, it's again, it's so intuitive. Once Mm -hmm. you really start like separating your food scraps, first of all, you're taking this whole ick factor out of your regular trash, right? Because your regular trash sits around and it starts smelling, right? And then once you separate the food scraps and either put it into an enclosed bucket or in your fridge or freezer, you solved that problem, right? Because know, my garbage always smells the worst when it has coffee grinds and bananas mm-hmm. in it. <laughs> I'm shocked now. I think after the show, you need to do some research and find a place to chop yes. off those. Yes. <laughs> I know. I, I'm going to start with me and then our whole audience is going to also, we're all going to become composters. All of um, us, Yes. And so at what point did you start including e-waste? Because I imagine in the 80s, when you started the Ecology Center, there wasn't, there there was technology, of course, but it was just like, it was very different. Oh, yeah. I still remember getting my first computer, Mac, which had a window that's probably a little bit bigger than our, some of our smartphones are now and floppy disk (laughs) and a printer that was like really big. Uh It made a lot of screechy noises. Yeah. And I spent a tremendous amount of money on this. And I think our relationship with technology has changed so much. Technology has changed how we live, how we communicate, but it also... I feel has has changed because I still remember my first computer and holding on to it because I'm like, wow, this is my first baby, so to speak. And I didn't want to just throw it away. And I think nowadays we just upgrade our technology so much faster. Mm-hmm. And so that has contributed to this. Oh yeah, it's obsolete. It's not fast enough anymore. Whatever ideas we have or what we're picking up from advertisement to in- to entice us to buy the shiny new stuff, right? There is this incredible wave of that is just being generated. And we started a program in 2003. So this is, we're celebrating 20 years of chasing down e-waste. And of course, electronics was such a low hanging fruit in terms of why it's so important to do it. For one, there is so much toxic materials in electronics. If you like look at the pie chart of everything that's in the waste stream that either goes to incinerators or to a landfill. Electronics is a little sliver of that. It's maybe one to two percent of this of this chart. But in terms of contributing to the toxicity and heavy metals that we find in in this waste stream, it it contributes like 70% of that because wow. it has just such a tremendous amount of, for example, these old clunky TVs, they have lead in them in the class to prevent radiation from hurting you when you're watching TV. This is leaded class that if it goes into a landfill, we have lead in the landfill now, right? It's just really contribute a disproportional amount of toxic materials to the waste stream. And that's why it's really so important to recycle them. Plus, of course, they they should really be, if they're not super old, refurbished and reused, right? Mm. Because that's the other really interesting thing about this technology is that can 
extend the life of technology by maybe settling for something that's not the shiny new stuff, but it still works. Sure. I'm such a culprit too. I my, I have a laptop that sort of stopped turning on correctly. And mm-hmm. I then started using my husband's who got a new one from work. That's besides the point. But I'm holding on to that old laptop because there's stuff on it that I know that I'm going to want, but it's having a hard time rebooting. And so I'm I'm part of the problem in terms of not taking it to the Apple store to make sure that it can, I can get my information off of it so that it can be refurbished and reused while it's still in otherwise reasonable condition. And I think we all, to your point, we're all conditioned to want the new thing and we want the thing that works and is shiny and to keep up with the trends. But for some reason, I think we all hold on to the old technology because we might use it again one day for who knows what reason. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible, but I feel like we all, I don't know why. I don't know. Is it ex- because it's expensive, because it once did such a good thing for us that we are, it's, we're sentimental. I don't, I'm sure there are a million reasons why we hold on to these things. Yeah. And it's also what you're saying. There's a lot of personal information on devices. And then yeah. all of a sudden the device might not be booting up anymore, but you're like, oh, there's all these pictures on that device that I I want to make sure get everything gets swiped that I don't want other people to take a look at. There's also this dilemma, of course, of data security. And mm. I think a lot of people come to our events and they say, oh, I have this old laptop and I still have information on it that I really want to get off it or not so much that they need the information, but they're just concerned about, you know, that the information is kept secure. Secure, Of course, they have old passwords, they have their banking information, there's a spreadsheet of their finances, of course. Yeah. So that's all sensitive personal information. And so that that's the other thing why people hold on, but then they also realize, oh my God, I'm holding on to something that's 10 years old now. And right. at a certain point, you're also like, oh, I just need to get rid of it. And obviously you can always go to a store and try to see if the information or the hard drive can be, can be taken out or the information can be destroyed. But also at the events that, uh, that are offered here in the city, um, all the vendors really guarantee data security. So Mm -hmm. when, like, in our events, we guarantee that data is being kept secure, old laptops either get shredded, so the information actually gets, or the whole device gets physically destroyed. And if it's a newer device that could be refurbished, the hard drive gets wiped before it even else happens to it. So there are ways Hmm. to ensuring that data is being secured. Wow. So we have an e-waste drive at the JCC on April 23rd. Can you talk us through the process of once folks drop stuff off, what happens next? Does it go through sorting? Does mm-hmm. And then can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So at these events at the JCC, which are always really a lot of fun. Good. <laughs> yes, it's it's always good because there's so many people streaming out of this building all the time. Sure. Uh-huh. And then they're like, oh, you're collecting e-waste. I'll be right back. So it's just such a great location. And, and people expect us to be there twice a year now. We come in the spring and in the fall. And so it's a, li- a nice routine. I think we've been doing this now for 
years, if not a decade. It's fun to work with a with a partner like that. And when people come to the event, the sorting starts there, right? A lot of people start their little bag or what have you with what they think should go to an electronic waste right. <laughs> And we're like, okay, let's take a look. And obviously, a lot of people really bring us things that we want. And right there at the event already, we sorted out the printers all go together on a wooden pallet. The CPUs go together. And that, again, will then facilitate once the next step, once this equipment then is shrink-wrapped and transported to a recycling place, that's the next step where things are getting taken apart. And you want to really work on and you want to have a, a sort of a workflow where there's all the printers, for example, what you have to do with printers, you have to take out the ink cartridges and so it can get shredded, right? Because mm -hmm. if you would shred the whole printer with the ink cartridges in it, it would just explode, right? Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be so pretty. With so I imagine there are also like separate processes for each thing, right? So you take yeah. apart the printer you t and then there's, then suddenly you have a pile of ink and then the ink you do something with the ink and then you do, then you shred the printer. Right. So it's like really dissecting yeah. all of this, the technology. Yeah. Basically disassembling the different parts that are in these machines or for a CPU, there is the, there's the hard drive, there's the memory chips, there is mm -hmm. all these different components that might get sorted out and then really sold to different downstream vendors. So there is a lot of, I think a lot of hands touch these materials after you drop it off to really get recycled or refurbished. You were saying that people will bring their bag of things that they think should be dropped off at an e-waste <laughs> recycling. Is there something that you find people always think should be recycled that actually shouldn't be? Is it like cords or is there anything in particular that are like, oh, you, this is, you think that this should be an e-waste, but actually isn't? Yeah, no. I think sometimes it's the, this confusion, people saying, but it's electronic. I plug it into the an outlet in the wall. Why don't you take it? And then we are like explaining to them how like your toaster oven, for example, yes, it's obviously electronic, but you can just recycle that with your regular metal, glass and plastic at home. You don't have to like wait for an e-waste event to bring it. Sure. And we actually do not take it. We try to tell people that and then i think my pet peeve is toothbrushes <laughs> yes that's totally a thing oh i would yeah. think oh this is electronic let me bring it okay yeah right yeah. anybody and listening don't bring your electric toothbrush to the drop off <laughs> Yes. And the electric toothbrushes, they, it's really such a dilemma because yes, they are convenient and wonderful. And most people understand that there is a rechargeable battery in their electric toothbrushes. And so this rechargeable battery should really be recycled. Rechargeable batteries have, have heavy metals in them and shouldn't be disposed into the trash. But how do you get to this battery, right? Because it's encased in this plastic and it's this whole thing is designed to keep the battery so it won't get wet. So whenever you use it, it's safe, but it also prevents you at the end of life to really do the right thing. So mm. it's, I'm, I always just stand there. I don't know what to tell people short of don't buy electric toothbrushes, <laughs> which is harsh to tell someone. <laughs> I try to talk about it. So they realize that's, that would be a solution instead mm -hmm. of wagging my finger and saying, don't do that. <laughs> but yeah, 
So electric toothbrushes are a consistent thing where you really can guide a conversation, but I cannot offer people really a good solution because here they have this electric toothbrush that does not recharge anymore. And the responsible thing to do is to get this battery recycled. But quite frankly, even I couldn't tell you how to do that because also opening the casing, it's it's not really recommended to do this brings up a really good point. I think the idea of all of us doing our part to reduce the waste in the world is tremendously important. But I think that it's so easy to get bogged down thinking that these tiny little decisions can actually make a big difference. And there are probably millions of electronic toothbrushes that are sold every year And so really, if everybody chose to no longer use them, you're saying it really would actually make a pretty significant difference. Do you have anything to say to those folks who think, oh, my my one tiny change isn't going to make bigger change? Yeah. And I think it's a personal decision. And I think you have to weigh how important is it to me? Uh, what do I value more? And some people will, will fall either way. Some people might say after realizing what a dilemma that is that, oh, I can live without this. And other mm. people will say, no, I I do not. I mean, there's there would, of course, also be um, Uh, opportunities to just advocate for a better design of these materials, right? So that you can actually do what, when you buy it, these devices with rechargeable batteries, there's always warnings about not putting it in the trash, right? So why don't manufacturers then also design their products so you can do that and you don't have to put anything that shouldn't go in the trash. You can bring it to the right place, in other words. It says don't put it in the trash, but it doesn't say what you should do with it and you can't recycle it. So it becomes this impossible cycle of now everybody just has dozens of broken electronic toothbrushes under their cabinet in their bathroom. Yeah, and it's frustrating. And I think there is this aha moment and then some people will take either action from that after they they gone through that experience but yeah i think holding manufacturers and industry a little bit more responsible for really thinking about okay you you designed a wonderful product it's very convenient it's very helpful to consumers but also think about what really happens to it once that product is no longer functioning mm. uh, so end of life And how do we really ensure that no harm is done when it gets disposed? I think that is just really something that manufacturers have to take that responsibility. When you say hold the manufacturers responsible, that feels very like a very big concept. How can a little person like me help hold a manufacturer responsible? Is that, not that you need to have all the answers, but is it as simple as sending an email, calling your representatives? I don't know. For someone who might not even know where to begin, how does somebody hold these manufacturers responsible? Yeah, it's just, it's interesting because why we have these free electronic waste recycling opportunities, that's also because manufacturers were basically told, look, you have to provide a service like that so people have an opportunity to drop off the electronics and it gets recycled. Oh, wow. And it, it took a lot to get legislation like that on the books. 
And just like with anything, it starts, it's, it always starts small with either people communicating to, to let's say, a manufacturer, hey, I love your product, but I will not buy it anymore because I can't dispose of it in a responsible way. For example, mm. that would be one way of approaching that. So making basically the manufacturers aware of it. Also, it's always good to involve your elected officials because after all, they can do legislation. And if enough of a desire is there, that will get pushed through. And then there are laws on the book that would that would make sure that the desired outcomes actually happen. But all of that is a long haul. And it always takes, I think... Um, some momentum and different people coming together to affect something like that. But I think just even just letting people know at this touch points of maybe just writing an email or making a phone call and just letting manufacturers know that love their product, but you have a real problem. Even bringing to their attention, sending a note saying, hey, how do I dispose of this properly? Because the directions say not to put it in the garbage. It's a good way of calling somebody yeah. out on and making them address an issue. Is there one change that you think people can make on a daily basis that is easy that can really make a big difference from your experience, whether that is in regard to e-waste or composting or just waste in general, or just living a more conscious life. Is there something that you recommend for people to just start? Composting for one, of course, because yeah. it's, it's really easy. And once you start, there's really no turning back. And, and also the program is just really growing here in the city. And mm. it is, it is also so significant because not only are we avoiding a whole bunch of transportation of very heavy materials, and then if food scraps end up in the landfill, generation of methane gas, which is a very powerful greenhouse gas. But what we also really do by composting is really closing the cycle of life because we take this food waste and we really make something new out of it. The compost is really a soil amendment that then helps us to grow, for example, the next harvest, right? The yeah. food. Or we can apply it to street trees to make them healthier. So it is very much, especially in our urban setting here, it's a connection to a, a natural cycle. And I think the more we think about these connections that we are in, even so might not feel like it if you're in an apartment and but you're still part of an ecosystem you still your whole life depends on it and just really reconnecting with that i think is just sure no that's fantastic and as we said it early on it's easy enough to just do and we should all be doing our tiny part in that way we all have the food waste and it's simple so we have no excuses no excuses. I always say composting is for people that eat food. So, yes, and yeah. we all do. This has been so fantastic. Christine, thank you for sharing all of this with us. I think that we, as humans, just need to, on a daily basis, be thinking about how we're contributing to, to waste, especially e-waste, as technology is constantly changing. I imagine it's just a drastically different landscape, literally and metaphorically, from 35 years ago, from five years ago. And so it's 
we need to do our part in making sure that we are keeping on top of it so that we can keep the e-waste down as much as we can. Is there anything I didn't cover? Any final thoughts that you wanted to share? No, I think we really covered a lot of, <laughs> we covered a lot of ground. That was, and, the, that was my goal. Yes. And Jason, it was a pleasure talking to you. We can't wait to have you and your team at the Lower East Side Ecology Center with us on the Upper West Side on April 23rd. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the Lower East Side Ecology Center by visiting lesecologycenter.org, where you'll find calendars for workshops, events, and compost and e-waste drop-off information. To learn more about programming at the JCC, visit mmjccm.org. 76 West is produced by Udi Ehrman and me, Jason Blitman. Our audio engineer is Matt Temkin. Make sure to check out our other episodes, and if you like what you're hearing, rate us, review us, share us with your friends, and don't forget to like and subscribe so you'll be the first to know when the latest episode drops. Until next time.